Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Good morning, Em. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I'm looking at you. We're right next door to each we other, are. but I'm looking at you on a screen and it just still feels weird. It kind of feels like how I'm looking at everybody these days, except everybody, for our kids and the people that we work with every day. All relationships are being cultivated online. Yeah, I mean, what what is the date? Like, can you imagine if you were dating right now? Like, do you just yeah. date someone over Zoom? Like, how do you mm-hmm. make out? How do you kiss? How do you do any of those things? <laughs> right? You just kiss the screen? What's happening? No, honey. There's... You are so not a teenager right now. That is not how you would do that. That's <laughs> true. Anyway, they, ba- they barely know how to talk podcast. to. They barely know how to talk to each other. They just text <laughs> when they want to break up. Good Lord. Well, That's I'm excited true. about today's episode because Me too. we have a guest who I have just enjoyed. He has uh, transformed my thinking about so many different things, in particular mm-hmm. in the sex world, and um, and so we're excited to have the. Mm. One and only <laughs> Jay Stringer on the podcast today. Woo-hoo, Thank you. Hear the audience clap. Yay. Um, so Jay is an author. He is a minister. He's a counselor. He's a researcher and has spent the bulk of his career really diving into um, issues surrounding sex and sexual behavior, um, sex addiction, unwanted sexual behavior. And so really his goal is to kind of reframe this conversation, which is what he did in his last book called Unwanted. And so we are bringing Jay on the podcast today to really kind of explore the issue of abuse of power and maybe where um, sexual deviant behavior, sexually deviant behavior plays into that. So welcome to this conversation, Jay. Emily, Brett, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Brett, it's funny that you mentioned the one and only Jay Stringer because (laughs) there is actually another Jay Stringer who is a, uh, I believe he's a British crime author. Amazing. And so I will often get inquiries saying, you know, what made you write Unwanted after doing crime fiction for so (laughs) so many years? God loves you so uh, much you made that happen. If you Google Jay Stringer, there are are two author Jay Stringers. Oh my (laughs) God. That's great. Amazing. It would be fun to potentially collaborate to write a book (laughs) I mean, you both would have some stories, I'm sure. Blah, blah, blah by the Jay's Stringer. Yeah. That's oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, so Jay, Jay, you're coming to us live from New York City. New York City. Yes, as of about a month ago. So a new move. New move from in the Seattle, middle, Washington. In the middle of a pandemic. Yes, exactly. And it is such <laughs> a great city. Um, my family has been walking quite a bit, as we have to do. And I mean, there's just dog poop everywhere. <laughs> and so uh, my brother-in-law, who lives in the city as well, sent me this Jerry Seinfeld oh, awesome. uh, article where he, he was basically talking about before the pooper scoop laws in New York City, there there just used to be piles of it everywhere. Oh and gosh. Jerry Seinfeld in kind of classic form just says, like, you know, saw a huge pile of dog poop <laughs> and it's still the best city in the world. Uh, and I love it. It, it is, it's such an amazing city. Oh, that's so cool. Well, that's awesome. Not, not awesome that you had to move during the midst of a pandemic, but it is a great city and I'm so glad mm-hmm. your family's loving the, loving the walks out. Well, speaking of big piles of poop, um, let's talk about this issue. <laughs> great transition. <laughs> because, because it is. And I want, I want us to kind of first give some context around like we're seeing it all the time now in the news. It's kind of like this huge Band-Aid has been ripped off of abuses of power of several different kinds, whether it's economic, you know, uh, corporate CEOs, big farm, like taking all these 
major bonuses by raising drug prices through the roof so they can get, you know, that sort of unethical abuse of power, if you will. But then we're also seeing so much of um, abuse of power and sexual harassment and misconduct in the workplace and in the church. How do we, or how can you really help us define what is an abuse of power? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a great, everybody has power. Um, And so I think to be able to say power is the capacity to influence and uh, we can see the the good side of power influencing people for, I mean, someone like the late Ruth Gader Ginsburg, uh, the way that she used her power to be able to call out discrimination and to change culture was such a beautiful and redemptive use of power. Uh, but then on the other hand, we can also see power be used for really manipulative and destructive purposes. And I think just as you study history, this isn't anything new. Uh, I think part of what's emerging is that uh, we're not putting up with it as much mm-hmm. as we used to. Uh, and so I think as we look at you know f- abuse of power, specifically the, the sexual abuse of power in religious communities, uh, part of what we have to recognize is that every leader has really profound gifts. They mm-hmm. would not be in the position that they are in if they didn't have gifts. And so when you begin to look at, uh, you know, there are gifts of leadership, uh, there are gifts of positional, there's power of position, there are gifts of knowledge, there's, uh, you know, the ability to have theological knowledge, psychological knowledge. And so when a religious leader is leading, uh, they are using and bringing the full gamut of their power in that particular role. And so... Uh, whenever they begin to use their theological power, their positional power, their their ability to influence for their own sexual gain, what we have is really an abuse of power. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I was preparing this morning and I wrote just down the phrase power differentials. And I think in the world that we're living in today, we... There's so many who shy away from white, think phrases like white privilege. Wait, I don't have white privilege. Everyone has the same equal opportunity because we're all Americans. But in fact, I'm a white guy. I'm like at the top of the, of the food chain socially, right? And so power differentials are realities. And so number one, I think my question is, should we acknowledge that they exist? I think they do, but I want to hear what you have to say about that. But I think it's important maybe that we acknowledge them in order to inform how we relate to each other. What do you think about that? Yes, absolutely. I I think it's such a key phrase that most leaders do not recognize the power that they have. Uh, And, you know, this is from Diane Langberg, the psychologist, but she says that power becomes the most dangerous the moment that a leader does not recognize how powerful they are. Um, or when, no, let me rephrase that. Uh, power becomes the most dangerous the moment that the leader does not feel powerful. Mm. And, uh, and that's a lot of what we're seeing. So, you know, when I work with a lot of religious leaders, pastors, uh, they might talk about the series of crises that they're under. Uh, so what they're telling me is like, Jay, I feel so powerless in my position. And it's at that moment of feeling powerless or maybe underfunded that they begin to misuse uh, their financial power within a church for their own gain. Uh, or they might feel powerless over a type of seduction. And so they don't recognize their positional authority, their status in their community. And then they feel really powerless over their lust, over their sexual behavior. And that's at the moment where they really begin to misuse their power. So we, we've heard it in the news a lot lately, just a lot of, I mean, a lot of pastors who have been falling, I'm not going to name anybody, but you know, you can research them. What, how, I keep trying to understand because I read some of these articles and they're so very graphic in some of the situations that have happened. So how does a guy who is like at the top of the, we'll call it evangelical Christian game, like they're on stage in front of tens of hundreds of thousands of people. And then in the next day, they're in a spa getting a happy ending. 
Like how, how, what, what's happening in the brain to reconcile some of those things? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I would go to two categories. The first would be uh, a binge purge cycle in their sexual life. And then the second would be uh, a form of sabotage to actually potentially lose their position. Uh, and I'll nuance that in just a little bit. But if if you think about uh, bulimia, uh, this is an eating disorder that's characterized by binging and purging. So you might see uh, it happens more often in women, but men are certainly uh, fall into bulimia as well. But that would be the image of I'm eating a lot of food, uh, a lot of carbohydrates, ice cream, doesn't matter what that thing is. And then I realize that I've just indulged so much. And now I can't deal with the shame of what I've just indulged. Now I need to purge it out. And I realize that, you know, myself as a man, if I go for a run, I could run uh, eight miles and burn a thousand calories and get rid of that binge that I just took place Mm. in. Uh, or I could just refrain from eating uh, for the next two or three days to be able to make atonement for the sin of indulging. And so what happens with a lot of evangelicals, and I would just say Christians that I work with, is there is this sense of they are indulging in their sexual life. Uh, they uh, are in a massage parlor uh, misusing their power in order to uh, get an orgasm, in order to influence someone else to have sex with them. Uh, they might be trying to arrange a sermon on a Saturday evening, feeling a lot of stress, feeling like the sense of, why am I arranging a sermon for no point? I don't even know if the church is going to listen to it in a COVID era. So uh, what's the point? I feel so powerless right now, and now I'm going to binge on porn. Uh, but then what ends up happening later is that then the leader feels some sense of conviction around their behavior, and then they attempt to purge it out. And that purge could be through singing a worship song the next day, uh, playing some worship song on Spotify in order to kind of cleanse and purge themselves of the sin that they just committed. And so when you see someone, you know, on that stage and then you hear about them uh, misusing their power, I would say that that's a huge structure of their sexual life is that they are binging in private and then their public life becomes something of that purge. Mm. Uh, So that would be the first category of the sexual binge and purge cycle. And then the second category would just be more of something anecdotal that I've noticed. Uh, You know, being a pastor, I would say, is one of the most difficult jobs that anyone can ever take on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also put, you know, a nonprofit leader in that category as well. I mean, you are under constant uh, stress. You're under constant people are idealizing your organization and then they will devalue you at a moment's notice. So many pastors are so loved in their community and then they are, you know, people just leave their community without ever telling this pastor that they have invested their whole life within. And so that sense of, um, you know, they're not paid nearly enough in, in a lot of cases. Um, they go through a lot of crisis, are under a lot of stress. It's a really difficult toll on their families. And so that sense of, I don't know if I have what it takes, and I don't know if I actually want to stay in this position for the next 10 years. And so what does their sexual behavior become? Well, it becomes a a ticket out of ministry. Mm. So the amount of people that if you begin to read, you know, the some of the latest Christianity Today articles, there are lines in there about major evangelical leaders telling a massage therapist that this is so stressful. I just can't handle it anymore, but I can't get out of my ministry role for X, Y, or Z reasons. And so their sexual life actually becomes a form of sabotage so that they can get out of that ministry position. And I think that's the heartbreaking reality Mm. of what does it mean to invite people who have power to get a sense of because you have power, you are idealized and you are devalued. And that is a diabolical experience to undergo. And so who are the people in your life that you're actually talking to about your power, about the misuse of power and about the places that you actually want to purge yourself from ever having or needing power again? I have a question. All of this just keeps coming back to me as you're talking about perhaps we've... um, 
defined true power in a really harmful way. Um, I wonder if if power, as God intended it, of course, as, as a faith community, I mean, God is emptying himself of, of power. And yet, in especially, you know, culture, it's, it's an up-down. It's a power is here and you're here. There's all of these levels. There's this ladder, right, that we hold up just by climbing it. Um, and we're, we're, we're telling people that power is up-down instead of within community. And I feel like where shame has to run and, and go away is when we recognize that each of us does have intrinsic value, right? Intrinsic power, divinely created by God, no matter where we are on the, quote, ladder or really in the circle of humanity, but I think that we've bought in, and I think the church has just propagated the up-down ladder. And so we've defined power totally wrong, so of course we're sabotaging ourselves, right? It, yes. <laughs> yeah. Keep preaching. Yes. So <laughs> and, so beautifully said. I mean, yeah, the, and the, I, what we're calling power are all these ego attachments. Mm-hmm, like, that's yeah. what that is. Yep. And so one of the important things that I learned uh, in seminary and grad school was it was basically the, this engagement with narcissism. And I know narcissism is one of those words that's used over and over again. And at least when I was in high school, a narcissist was like that guy that was full of himself, mm-hmm. uh, that needed that like really flashy car with a, a muffler microphone on the back in order to <laughs> kind of amp it. That was my high school experience anyway. Um, and so it's this image, at least what I learned uh, that's actually inaccurate, was that this guy was full of himself. Uh, but what we learn clinically is that narcissism is actually, I don't have a sense of self. And so therefore, I need an image, a position, a status, a symbol in order to reflect back to me who I am. Mm. And so that sense of if I have a church with X amount of people, if my organization raises X amount of dollars, um, if I am able to influence this amount of people, get this many book contracts, well, that's my worth. And that's where you see a lot of that relentless search for I don't know who I am. And I need to keep constructing all these symbols around me so that I don't have to deal with just how empty I am. Mm. And so I think that's the antidote, as you put really well, is how do I, as a man, begin to engage some of my own emptiness and some of my grabs at power of that top-down thing to reflect back who I am versus, no, what does it mean for me to be known and to offer love uh, in order to feel known? And in that experience of being known, well, there's not as many power grabs that I have to take part of. You know, if you're listening to this and all of Jay's words sound familiar, it might be because you've heard our previous guest, uh, Chuck DeGroat, talk about when narcissism comes to church and really unpacks that. So if you're listening and you want to know more about narcissism and how it's impacting the the church especially, um, you you need to go back and listen to that podcast because that's going to make sense. I need to go back and listen to that. Oh, it's so good. So glad you had him on. Mm -hmm. He was gold. Yeah. Just straight gold. Which uh, so you in in your book Unwanted, which every person on the planet needs to read. By the way, um, you it's talk so about you talk about you've researched how many clients who either have bought sex, had affairs, had issues with pornography, things along those nature. It's like several thousand clients, correct? Yeah, it, about thirty eight hundred men and women that you studied intensely clinically regarding these issues. So. How many of those people would you say dealt with narcissism? Uh, it, it's a tough question. I didn't. I didn't ask about that. But I, I think narcissism, particularly, not that women uh, don't fall into a type of narcissistic structure, uh, but I think most men. I would say that's that's a crucible for every man mm. uh, to have to undergo. Uh, so I don't. I think that narcissism exists on a spectrum in that we yeah. all have this pain and this wounding that we go through and it's in the pain and then the wounding that we begin to maneuver our life in order to not have to grapple with just how painful, how empty, how insignificant I feel. So I think that's a huge 
component of it mm-hmm. is that, you know, pornography can actually, as a man, help me feel really powerful at some level. So one of the things that my research showed with men was that men uh, who lacked a clear sense of purpose were seven times more likely to escalate their involvement in porn. And so what do you see there? Well, here's a very powerless man who looks back over the course of his life, sees a lot of failure, doesn't really have a sense of where he wants his life to go. And then what does pornography offers? Well, it offers a context where he doesn't ever have to fail. He can get exactly what he wants and no one will ever know. And he doesn't have a spouse, a partner actually asking anything of him. He's just able to get it. So I think that sense of the deprivation, the insignificance, the lack of purpose then sets up the binge on, I need a place to be able to have power. This isn't just about self-medicating pain. Mm. This is about a pursuit of power. Mm. Okay. So I think why I want to explore this next kind of question is because we're at this point. I grew up, Brett and I are both Texans, born and bred. We still live here. We grew up in Baptist church life, you know, um, and one of the things that marked kind of our youth experience was the purity culture. I mean, like sign the pledge. I had a really funny story where I didn't sign my youth group pledge to remain a virgin, even though I, even though I was, that was my experience, but I didn't want somebody telling me what to do with my body. (laughs) And somehow I just knew that I was really a good girl and I wanted to do the right thing and, but I couldn't do it. And so my youth pastor was like, I think I need to talk to her, you know, dad about like, is she having sex? And we don't know it. So it was this really like awkward conversation with these two men as a high school student, you know, about my virginity. And, <laughs> and now I'm working with women in the sex industry. So it's really funny, like coming full circle around oh my these issues of, um, of sex and purity. And so that's kind of our context. Um, of, of where we come from, but then we kind of see this other extreme in culture where it's like a casual, you know, I have teenage daughters now who it's casual hookups, not for my daughters, but for, for many of their friends and, and online community as well, you know, they're getting propositioned online. They're getting reached out to by sugar daddies all the time in their inboxes, even though they're private, even though my girls have private settings. Um, and the, the extreme is that like, anything goes like sex doesn't really matter. Like it, it is whatever it needs to be. And so we kind of have these two extremes and I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering like, where's the middle of all this? How do we need to, where do we need to go from here? Yes. That's such a great question and such a great analysis as well. Uh, The way that I I talk about it in my book is that most of what we have been dealt, uh, particularly as as evangelicals and Christians, is a a lust management technique. Mm. And so that's the sense of, you know, I need to bounce my eyes uh, from any attractive person that I meet. Uh, I need to take the purity pledge. In my Southern Baptist high school that I went to, there was a guy from a well-known evangelical university that came in uh, that basically used this imagery of there there was a wolf. Uh, It basically had to kill a wolf in an Inuit tribe. And basically what you would do is that you would dip a... uh, a knife or a dagger into seal's blood and, and basically let it freeze. And so the wolf comes to the... So violent... And the the wolf will come to the camp, smell the seal blood on the knife and start licking it. And then in the midst of licking the seal blood, it starts to actually cut its own tongue and it can't tell the difference between is it seal blood or wolf blood. And then in the morning you have this dead wolf. And I mean, I, I remember being a junior awful. in high school, Good like, God. you know, <laughs> looking to my left, looking to my right and just seeing all these horrified, like ninth graders and 10th graders, like, oh my God, like, because I masturbated, I'm going to end up dead. <laughs> I'm going to be licking a um, razor blade. <laughs> oh, I know. And just these really poor metaphors and analogies that... Uh, have just done so much destruction. And then, you know, then you start struggling and then you get some internet monitoring on your computer. If you're really struggling, you get into accountability. 
But as one of my friends said to me when I was writing my book, he said, Jay, when I've been having the same conversation with my accountability partners for 15 years, something isn't working. (laughs) And then on the other hand, you know, growing, being more in a progressive city, uh, they often make, uh, you know, sexual shame and stigma the primary issues. And so that is just what I would say, shame management, where mm-hmm. we don't want to shame people for particular choices. Everyone can make their own decisions. Uh, and if we could just remove, you know, some of the shame and stigma associated with a particular sexual choice, then people would be free. Uh, but that doesn't work either. And so mm-hmm. I think part of my attempt at writing Unwanted was to create that middle way, a third way of being able to say, you know, not how do we manage our sexual life and not how do we just like liberate ourselves to do whatever we want, but really to begin to interrogate our sexual fantasies, our sexual behaviors in order to understand what they might have to teach us. And mm-hmm. so when I studied 3,800 people, I looked at, you know, some of the major porn sites in the world actually keep track of all their data uh, of, you know, what are people searching for? So a lot of mother oriented themes, a lot of it just there's so many classic themes out there. So I, my research looked at if this was your particular porn search, uh, what could that actually tell us about the unresolved stories of your life? Wow. And the, the short story is that uh, a person's sexual fantasy and behavior could be shaped, if not fully predicted, based on the parts of their story that were not being addressed. And so the implication, I think, is really big. It means that our sexual struggles can actually be a roadmap to healing, mm. not a life sentence to sexual shame or addiction. Say that so again. Hold that on. you got to say that beautiful. again because that's going to free someone up that's listening to this because they've been living <laughs> under that damn shame that we put on them, save sex till marriage, and if you totally screw up, then God's going to cry and angels are going to fall out of the sky. Say that again. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, just, you know, your sexual struggles uh, are not a life sentence, Mm. the sexual shame or addiction. Uh, Your sexual struggles are a roadmap to healing. Mm. And so how do we invite people to get a sense of, and this is true of everything, like, you know, a, a, a... Marriage has to be able to struggle in order to go into that next state of uh, healing. So you're, you know, some marriages I think are broken, but far more. No, your marriage is actually doing what it's supposed to do. If it reveals just how selfish and, uh, uh let's just leave it at self, how selfish uh, <laughs> right. you can be. And so that sense of, it doesn't mean that you married the wrong person in a way we all married the wrong person. Mm. But but struggles, crucibles, are how we grow spiritually and relationally. And so uh, the only danger is really when you try and suppress the reality of the struggle in the marriage, in your sexual life, that's really where a lifetime of damage will be sown through not actually attending to the heartache that's within your life and story. Gosh, that's so refreshing to hear. I hope everybody who is listening to this, who has struggled in their marriage, who has struggled with any kind of addiction, whether it's sex addiction or substance abuse or um, just chronic crucibles, as as Jay was just talking about, these chronic struggles, it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And I think what you're inviting us to, Jay, is a curiosity that feels really scary sometimes. So why why are we scared to be curious? Another great question. Uh because we don't we don't know what we're going to find. Mm-hmm. Uh because we've already prejudged the data that we know about. So if I know that there's a porn history there for me, uh I think that that reveals that I should have never gone into ministry or counseling. Uh, and so that sense of whenever there is shame, there is judgment. And when it, within that judgment are profound accusations that if anybody actually knew just how much I struggled with this thing, uh, they 
would never want to be in relationship with me at all. Um, if I actually talked about that thing that my brother, uncle, babysitter did to me, uh, they would look at me uh, with a type of disgust of how could I have allowed something like that to take place, much less that my abuser actually brought me a sense of pleasure, as many people have found. Mm -hmm. So that sense of what am I supposed to do with my own sexual harm that I have done, but also what am I supposed to do with the sexual harm that has also been done against me? Well, I don't want to get anywhere close to that. And so if I judge it, then I don't have to be curious about it. And I think that's the, that's the invitation of so much of scripture is this very curious God. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at Adam, who's just eaten of the tree that God commanded him not to eat from, he doesn't say, you know, bounce your eyes from the next tempting piece of fruit. Mm. Try and manage that thing, buddy. Uh, you know, to Hagar, who's just been immensely traumatized by the first family of our faith. Uh, she's, you know, at a truck stop, essentially, <laughs> on I-10. Like, when she, this, uh, the, the scripture, the text says that she's, you know, uh, by the spring on the road to Shur. And it sounds like this uh, Four Seasons place, but it's it's much more <laughs> right. truck stop I-10, I-95. Like, you don't want your daughters or your sons ending up at this place. And that's really where the angel, the Lord shows up to ask her two of the best questions that could ever be asked, which are, where do you come from and where are you going? And so I think that's that's the real invitation to all of us is, where do you come from? So yeah, you buy sex. Yes, uh, you misuse your power. Uh, yes, you enter into unwanted fantasies when you're having sex with your spouse. But where do you come from? Uh, when did those things actually originate for you? And if you can be curious about them, those things will have so much to teach you. And, you know, I can say that theologically. I can also say that from just a research standpoint of when you look at uh, affairs, when you look at types of porn that people pursue, these are not random. Uh, so one example of this for women would be if a woman felt like her needs were not met, she was anywhere between two and a half to four and a half times more likely to pursue an affair. And so that doesn't just mean that she's being missed in her marriage. It's that, you know, the classic Enneagram 2 where it, it's, it's virtuous in a way to not have any needs, mm. not make my needs known. And so what does your sexual life actually, it, it compensates from that sense of, well, I'm not going to have any needs in reality. Mm. I'm only going to have needs in my fantasy life. And so that sense of your fantasy life actually has so much to teach you about what you're actually not doing in reality. And so I think that's the big paradigm shift is that your sexual brokenness has profound amounts of data encoded within it that will actually provide you with the keys to the freedom that you're seeking. So you're mm. saying, number one, it's natural to have fantasies. And number two, <laughs> it's okay to be curious about them. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I yeah, was going to say, we, that's the thing you're not saying that needs to be said. We can't separate our sexual desires. It's, it's hardwired in us to crave intimacy, to crave sex, to crave... That is normal. And we've so normal. repressed it. So much so. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, sex is taken from the Latin word saccare, which means to sever or to amputate from the whole. And so sex then is this awareness that I am disconnected from one another and I need to go about finding a way to re reconnect. So <clears throat> there's a difference between just kind of uh, being genital yeah. versus being sexual. So one Catholic theologian by the name of uh, Ronald Rollheiser talks about just this image of like, if you were to see an infant crying in a crib, that's actually an expression of his or her sexuality. Mm -hmm. And that might seem wrong to you as you listen to say, you know, how is an infant sexual? And mm -hmm. all I can tell you is that, you know, it, when you look at ultrasounds, mm -hmm. babies are touching themselves yeah. in yeah. utero. So that sense of when a baby is crying, well, what are they doing? They're saying, I'm disconnected. Uh, I'm cold. I'm messy. Uh, and I need someone to begin to come towards me to help me feel warm, help me feel reconnected. And that's an expression of our sexuality. Mm -hmm. So 
all of our attempts at relationship, our bids for connection, our cries are always an expression of something of our sexuality that wants to be made whole again mm. in relationship. So, so good. Um, I think one of the things that you brought up is this very physiological um, reality to, and just biology, that there's attachment there. We've talked on the podcast a lot about attachment theories and um, just how primal, I mean, really those cravings are. Um, But also when it comes to, when it comes to sex and when it comes to intimacy, um, there's the chemical reaction, right? Happening in our body. Can you talk to us because you kind of alluded to it that we're needing something, but what's happening in our brain and in our body that actually scientifically connects us and why sex is so important? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, neurochemicals involved. Um, you, it would be a great podcast to bring yeah. in a, a neuroscientist to talk about those. But mm-hmm. you know, if we were to just talk uh, initially about something like oxytocin, oxytocin is released. You know, when a mother gives birth to a baby, that sense of flood of connection. Uh, but then there's also dopamine. Uh, dopamine isn't just about pleasure. It's also responsible for memory and motivation. Uh, and then for a lot of people, cortisol is actually part of their sexual cycle as well. So cortisol is a type of stress response. Uh, and so if you were to begin thinking about, you know, let's say you're feeling really stressed, you're feeling a lot of cortisol in your system, and then your dopamine and the neurochemicals actually remind you Uh, Do you remember that thing of porn? Do you remember that illicit affair that you had? Uh, That's going to actually help you feel motivated. That's going to give you a pleasure. And then you participate in that. And studies have shown that if you're using porn and orgasming with your phone around, you can actually develop oxytocin-like bondings to your phone, to your tablet, to your computer, to another person. Wow. And so it's this really, you know, it's a sexual cocktail that's being mixed where a lot of stress, but then also a lot of pleasure and motivation, but then also a lot of bonding. And so that that experience of, on one hand, it felt really good, but on the other hand, I felt really ashamed of what I just participated in. And so for me as a clinician, I have to kind of go back to say, well, where did that neurochemical actually get established? And for a lot of men and women, that's actually in the context of their own introduction to pornography or their own sexual abuse. And so when you think about just a lot of abusers actually have a very um, intimate relationship with the victim that they're abusing. So more often than not, that's a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a camp counselor, a neighbor, a friend. And so what are they doing? They're, they're using their power of relationship in order to move towards that victim. Well, a lot of people might feel disconnected from their parents, might grow up in a very religious, rigid system. They might be completely disengaged and not develop a secure attachment. And so that first experience of oxytocin, uh, where someone notices, hey, Jay, you have a really great arm. You should be in the NFL one day. Or you have such a pretty voice. Uh, have you? Can, can I hear you sing? And so that, that first initial involvement is actually not genital. It's not sexual. It's a type of emotional bonding. And then, you know, every abuser is fundamentally concerned with the pleasure of their victim. And so that, again, just that nuance of uh, the moment that an abuser can actually uh, elicit some pleasure in their victim, the victim then feels complicit Mm. in the abuse. They are not complicit, but then they begin to feel some level of, you know, this abuser actually notices me far more than my own mother or father. What do I do with that sense of it feels so good to be seen, to be touched, and yet this is also secretive? Well, in the midst of that secretive nature, you also feel a lot of stress. What if anyone finds out about this? And then your abuser may have you know, used an overt threat to say, if anyone finds out about this, there's going to be hell to pay for you, or this is just our secret, don't tell anyone. And so that sense of, you know, that's a really toxic neurochemical Mm. cocktail that gets established in childhood as a sexual template, but then gets reinforced much later in life. And so 
just that invitation to so many people who are struggling in their sexual life and doing maybe sexually harmful things to begin to really grapple with, you know, where, where was something of that sexual cocktail originally for you? And how do you begin to attend to some of the, the wounds and the abuse from those formative stages in your life? Wow. I think, I think what I hear in that is really, it really is when I can understand that there's so much physically and biologically happening, that helps shame to leave as well. Because it's not just that I'm a bad, immoral person, right? It's not that I'm just so terrible. It, It really becomes, like you're saying, this roadmap to understanding my own story, my own woundedness um, as an invitation. But what's the way off of that? I mean, what's the way out for, let's just say right now, let's say a pastor is listening to this podcast who is indulging and going through that binge purge cycle. Um, What would be the way off that negative wheel, that negative cycle, if they can honestly say to themselves, I don't want to be doing this. I just don't know how to stop. And you just said accountability for 15 years doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what does? Yes. Well, I I think that that sense of, are they able to seek out a a therapist, uh, a counselor who has some experience to recognize uh, that these unwanted sexual behaviors are not random, but they are actually revelatory of particular struggles and wounds that that leader is not attending to. So I think that sense of the humility to recognize there's so much about what I'm struggling with that I don't yet understand. Uh, So I would say to find a really good counselor uh, and then to be able to also open up to a type of group, uh, process group, to be able to hear some of those stories. And, you know, when I have led groups with various pastors, it's so surprising to just hear them say, oh, you feel that too. Uh, You feel really stressed. You actually don't want to be in ministry either. Um, (laughs) And so I I think if you actually realize that a a lot of these struggles that you're facing are actually common in the pastorate, um, that's a really good thing to attend to, but also to do some of that story, psychology, counseling work to begin to understand how did this become the problem that it is today? And then just back to what we said at the very beginning that Brett mentioned, uh, you have to recognize that you have power. Uh, And so if you're not recognizing the power that you have in your position uh, in the ways that that power is being misused, uh, that's, that's a huge blind spot. Brett. Let's all say together, I have power. I have power. <laughs> I have power. Now let's use yes. it for good. Yeah. Let's go out there and do it for good, not for shenanigans. Man, this is so good, Jay. You're thinking a lot, Brett. I can I can see you from the screen and your wheels. Well, I'm b- part turning. of it is that you know, we're talking about abuse of power. Like, I'm trying to keep us on topic, but I want to go down these rabbit trails of some of this sexual stuff, not mm. because I think it's just so good. And I'm just, that's what you're seeing in my face. That mm-hmm. all of you out there listening, you can't see me. So you're probably going, what's <laughs> happening right now? Where'd Brett go? Yeah. I, yeah. I do have, so I, let me, yeah, go, go ahead. I was just going to say one of, one of the things within abuse of power uh, that I, I think is just really important for leaders to recognize. Uh, is that I, I often think about unwanted sexual behavior as a as a type of river, and so if you were to just imagine the you know the Mississippi River, the Mississippi River is so powerful. Why? Well, because of all the other rivers that flow in as tributaries. So uh, the Missouri, I believe, the Ohio, Tennessee, Arkansas, and so a lot of what we experience within unwanted sexual behavior with clergy or people in power. When you hear them talk about it, they will say that I'm really lonely. I'm really sad. It was just a struggle that I had with lust. 
And so what they're saying is that there's really only one or two tributaries that are flowing into that river of unwanted sexual behavior. But one of the things that I think leaders always leave out is really the role of their own anger and the misuse of power. So when we look at Matthew 5, you know, Jesus is defining the nature of sin and he uses, uh, you know, just a lot of different examples to talk about sin. But two of the main ones are lust and anger. Mm. Well, the evangelical world has picked up on that sense of, you know, if I lust for someone, if I covet someone, then I'm guilty of adultery. And so all they want to see themselves as is just someone who struggles with lust. Uh, but what we also see in Matthew 5 is that Jesus is also uh, inviting people to grapple with their anger. Uh, we see this in you know James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, you want something and you don't get it, so you kill. And so that sense of a lot of leaders actually deeply struggle with anger and that mm-hmm. anger becomes sexualized. And so that sense of, I don't feel like I have a lot of power in my organization, in my ministry, even though I do, but I don't feel like I do. And so therefore I need an affair. I need porn. I need something in order to give me that sense of power again. And so if you are a leader who has been unsuccessful in outgrowing unwanted sexual behavior, well, part of what I would ask you to look at is, have you only been trying to block the tributary of lust, uh, but you have not attended at all to the other tributaries of, of the misuse of power and anger in your own life? That's so good. That's so good. Um, so, it, you know, we've talked about this on several episodes, but we, we, uh, we have a John school called stop demand school. And our goal is to intersect, um, the buying of sex, not just from a shame perspective, not from a shame perspective at all, but from a, this is what you're participating in. And we want to invite you to understand that you weren't just going to go buy a prostitute and you weren't helping her out because you had money. And, and so I think my question is, and you've worked with these types of individuals as well. Are they abusing power in that act of buying sex? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, there, there's a power differential there. There, there's the ability to kind of say, "I have money, uh, and I'm going to use my, fi- you know, my money in order to benefit myself." And so. Uh, when you look at a lot of the backstories of women uh, who end up uh, being prostituted, uh, there is a lot of sexual abuse. There's a lot of you know sexual assaults. There, there is so much harm in their story. And so that sense of, do they actually want to be in that role? Most of them would say, absolutely not. Uh, and so uh, the ability for a man to recognize that, you know, in, in the city of Seattle, before we started a John school, uh, it used to be something like a $500 fine to be a woman in prostitution, but a $100 fine to be a John. Yep. Uh, and so just that sense of it's not prostitution if it's a 15-year-old involved. This mm-hmm. is actually statutory rape. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that sense of even the way that our language, uh, where we try and say that Johns are just lonely, they're horny. But then when you begin to look at the language structures that we use for women, well, we call them whores, we call them harlots. Uh, but the reality is, is these are underaged girls uh, who are being uh, bought and sold. And so I think we have to contend with this. Buying sex is undoubtedly a misuse of power. You know, when I'm reminded of this story we heard years ago um, uh, on one outreach to the strip clubs and our team was in and they overheard a dancer telling another dancer, now you go out there and you hold your head high because you have the power in this place. You go out there and you let those men know who you are and that you are in control of everything. And it was such a unique, interesting thing because it's like, who has the power? Well, I would submit he has the power because he's got the money. The only reason why you're on the stage is because you want, need that money. But yet the lie that she was able to buy was, I have the power because I have the body that he wants to see. And so it's, it's, it's a real interesting, I don't know. I think it's a real interesting dichotomy that we, who actually has the power. I think you can. And I, I think that Jay really talked us through that where, where there has been harm done, 
to us in our story in in that early formative attachments and um, where trauma has entered in, you know, where we've been cast out of the garden, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, we have to go back there because then we're all grasp, grasping for a sense of power, which the irony is that we have it, but we don't know that we do. And so we're grabbing... We're trying to take it back. We're trying to take back um, things that have been taken away. Our our power feels threatened. And I, I mean, there's intrinsic power and then there's, you know, power in the world and agency to be able to self-determine and things like that. But... Um, you know, where real harm has occurred, I mean, we will, we will try to get it back in any way that we can. Yeah, and I think that that's a, that's a really good invitation for so many people who are misusing their powers to recognize, like, one of the power that you, one of the primary places that you actually have power is to admit mm. uh, that there is a struggle in your life. One of the things that's just heartbreaking across the ministry world is, you know, we mentioned the binge purge cycle earlier, but often what ends up happening out of that is that a man will really grow to mistrust women. Uh, And Mm. so he excludes them from ministry positions, doesn't allow women to take on leadership roles within an organization or within a church. Uh, And so what is that an extension of? It's that this man actually does not trust himself with women but then blocks women from getting close to him so that he doesn't have to deal with all of his own crap. Wow. It's so, and so true. I, and so that's what I would say is, no, instead of blocking women and scapegoating women as Jezebels and temptresses and seductresses, well, how about you actually attend? How about you use your own power, your own knowledge, your own skills, your own a gift of being able to exegete a text, but don't just exegete the scripture, exegete your own craft. Mm, that's good. And, and begin to get a sense of, you know, why, why am I so seduced here? Why, why do I want to leave ministry? Why do I struggle so much with this issue? Uh, and so that's a really amazing use of power is to be able to say, I feel really powerless and now I'm going to use my power to heal uh, what needs to be healed in order for my life and my ministry to flourish. Mm. You've just kind of unknowingly, but you've given us kind of a formula. I, I, I am, I love to solve problems and I really like to kind of like bring some things together. But what you've told us um, throughout this podcast is really about curiosity and confession. Mm-hmm. And if we can become really curious about why it is that we're moving in the way that we're moving, thinking in the way that we're thinking, doing behaviorally the things that we're doing. And then, um, yeah, curious about our stories. And then to be able to confess that to one another. I mean, what a beautiful map toward healing that truly can be. Of course, in a safe community and with qualified therapists um, being the caveat there. Um yeah, I mean, thank you for really for that invitation for us to see our own stories of um, sexual longings, sexual brokenness, um, and really become curious about how that can lead us into deeper intimacy with God, with ourselves, with others. That's that's a gift, Jay. Yeah, and I, I love those two poles of both uh, curiosity and confession, because if you only have one, mm. uh, it, it can very quickly become a dogma, right? So if I'm just curious, but I'm not responsible, well, Ooh. I'm going to get away with a whole lot. And That's... if I only confess, but I'm not curious, well, I'm never actually going to find kindness. And I mm. think that's, I mean, that's what I have been cornered with time and time again with the gospel is you know, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads to change? And so I try to change principally out of my own self-contempt. I hate myself for my sexual struggles, hate my body, hate my ability to talk. I hate all these things. And so the way that I usually try to change is through self-hatred. But part of what the gospel is saying is, can you actually be curious that there might be kindness for you in the midst of these struggles. And it's that kindness that changes us. Mm. 
But if I am only in a community that's just like, oh, kind curiosity, but doesn't really say, no, there's got to be some strength here for you to confess, for you to be able to admit the ways that you have misused your power. Uh, You know, that uh, kindness is really quickly going to become a type of accommodation rather than let's actually grow. So I think the crucible of all of our struggles actually says, yes, let's be deeply curious and kind towards people who are struggling, but actually let's also create context where we really have to grapple with the gravity and the reality of how we have done harm to others. Gosh. Well, American J. Stringer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we cannot thank Not British crime novel. We cannot thank you enough for this conversation. I feel like we could go on, but um, mm-hmm. let's wrap it up. And it's so good. Yeah. And I hope to put um, on our website page, on our podcast page, a link to some resources that you might find helpful. Um, and so we'll kind of ask Jay what some of his favorite resources are uh, for men, for women, for both. And then um, some some resources we've picked up along the way through podcasts and experiences maybe that you could become a part of and communities that might enrich your journey. And don't so, you, Jay, don't you facilitate an online community on your website? Did I see that? Yeah, so a, a couple of resources that I would plug would just be um, I, I train pastors and counselors to go deeper into their stories with regard to sexual brokenness. And so just that adage of a leader cannot take anyone further than they have been themselves. Well, what I find is that the seminary and many grad schools have actually not invited their uh, seminarians or grad school students to actually engage their own sexual stories. So, uh, I run with just a, it's called the unwanted guide training, uh, where I invite people to go deeper into their stories and the book. Uh, but then we also have an online course, uh, that's used for small groups, accountability partners. I didn't want to just, you know, tear down and critique and deconstruct accountability. I wanted to actually create, a better offering for that. So we have journey groups uh, that are essentially a five-month journey for people to go into their own stories. Uh, And so we have, you know, you can get that online course, or we also have, uh, through my ministry, just different groups that you can become involved in with a trained leader. And we'll put all those links on on the website. I will say this. I think you said in your book um, that you found that, folks who confess to their accountability group in the traditional sense of accountability group were like seven times more likely to, to then go back and, and watch porn again. And I think, man, I've been in some accountability groups that were the, the definition of abuse of power. It's like, <laughs> wait, I got to go tell my shit to that guy. And now he's going to hold it over my head. He's not going to, he's not going to walk me through it. He's ho- now, Brett, why did you, why? You know, the most shaming question we could ask someone is why? Why did you do that? Well, yes. I, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So anyway, I love I can't how remember you, the exact statistics. I love how you just, yeah, that, that was, that, that, that was a freeing point for me to read in your book was, oh, okay. Okay. Let's think differently about accountability. So, yeah. yeah, it can create a lot of just Christian voyeurism, whether it's like, what are you doing? And then, to, I mean, to the story that Emily shared earlier, I mean, that that's, it's so harmful uh, to be able to be cornered by two men interrogating. Well, she was keeping the whole youth group from going to Washington, D.C., Jay. So she didn't sign the card, and it was supposed to be 100% participation, and they didn't get to go. That we all would have been so knowledgeable and bold <laughs> as you, Emily. I I, I'm like, I wish I had your courage at that age. I, yeah, I can't, I can't figure myself out sometimes. Because there there were very courageous moments all along my life, but then a real pullback and retreat to of wanting to fall in line, really wanting to do the right thing, but just that gut instinct. And I think for a lot of, of you guys, too, listening out there, um, your gut, as you've listened to this, might be a little rumbly because it's hit on some truth. And that is the invitation for you to step into abundance and to step into a wide open pasture that maybe you haven't been in before with your sexuality. So um, I hope that you will take 
this podcast and take the resources and, um, and find a good courageous move there. Thanks for joining yeah, us. The, the rumbling gut <laughs> is so good. I mean, that's, that's Luke 15. That's the, you know, the parable of the prodigal son. He has a rumbling gut oh, man. and he returns back to lavishness mm. and to a party. So my goodness, that's good. Let's go. Thanks, Jay. Let's go, Jay. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Brett. So good to be here. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. Yes. Because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info. And visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.